0: Well, it's Christmas season, at least for me. It always started on Thanksgiving evening. If you're in retail, it started a long time ago. But it is Christmas season, and and so today I'd like for us before we start the series to just kind of talk with each other about it, Uh, because for me, Christmas is different from any other holiday of the year. Um, Think about it in this way. Uh, Even though we have other days that are big, like Fourth of July and President's Day and, and so on and so forth, Christmas is the only holiday that has a season associated with it. I mean, we don't talk about Fourth of July season, you know, or we don't talk about Halloween season, but with Christmas, there's a whole season of, of time associated with it. And then there's a genre of music, you know. I'm already, I have, I listen to satellite radio, and already on satellite radio, they're beginning to play Christmas music. And so, you know, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of artists release a Christmas album, so there's, there's Christmas music, and then decorations. I mean, already on my street, the lights are already on, and a lot of people will light their homes, and and you and I probably will have an evergreen tree, either fake or real, in our house, and we'll have it lighted, and we'll put decorations around our house, and some of us really go all out, decorate the whole house. Um, and then on top of that, many of us will have uh, a lot of parties in the month of December. I don't know about you, but my calendar tends to fill up pretty pretty quick in December because we have places to go. We're meeting with friends and family and relatives and people that we work with. And then gifts. A lot of us are going to spend a fortune on gifts this year. In fact, you shouldn't do this, but there will probably be some of us who will put those gifts on plastic and we'll be paying for Christmas this year in about for the next two or three years. And we'll buy presents for people we love. We'll buy presents for people we like. We'll buy presents for people we don't even like. And, and think about this. Do, do you realize that the retail year depends pretty much on Christmas? Between 20 and 40% of the average retailer's year depends upon Christmas. Think about that. Just 40% of the, of the retail year depending upon a holiday. So that, that must be a very unusual holiday. In fact, a lot of retailers where you shop or retailers that you do business with, they would go out of business if Christmas was no longer celebrated. If somehow we just called a timeout or we... Said no longer are we going to celebrate Christmas. A lot of retailers where you shop, they would have to close the door. So this is just could we just stop for a moment and say, this is an extraordinary holiday, and it's different from any other. Um, we celebrate President's Day. I went to see the Lincoln movie last week, and it was an interesting movie. I love Lincoln, I'm a big Lincoln fan. If you ever go into my office. Pretty much the p- most pictures that you'll see in my office are President Lincoln. I'm I just am a big fan. He was a, a great leader, and on top of that, he was a person that sacrificed his own interest for the good of the country. And that always amazes me, and I love his stories. I love quoting him. So I'm a huge Lincoln fan. I enjoyed the movie, but I'd be the first to say as much as I like Lincoln, there wouldn't be a Lincoln season or Lincoln music, or I don't give gifts on his birthday. What's, what is the deal? With Christmas, See, I think we ought to stop for a moment and think about how different and distinct Christmas is from any other holiday. And I think we need to say this. Either we are crazy, either somehow we've just drank the Kool-Aid and we're doing crazy stuff to celebrate a day. Or on the other hand, this person is somebody we should look into and think about why we celebrate his day. Because think about something for a moment. Nothing comes close to the celebration that we make for a carpenter born to peasant parents in an obscure village 2,000 years ago in rural Israel who was executed at 33 for being an enemy of the state and was so poor he didn't even have a tomb, he had to be placed in a borrowed tomb. Now, when you think about what we don't do for a lot of world leaders and great people and you think about what we do for a carpenter born to peasant parents in rural Israel 2,000 years ago who was crucified as an enemy of the state and laid in a borrowed tomb, that's pretty amazing. Now, I know that there would be some who would say, well, Mark, Christmas is only one of a season of winter holidays. But those winter holidays, if we would be honest with ourselves, those winter holidays were sort of brought in to compete with Christmas because really Hanukkah, as wonderful a day as it is, is only a mid-level Jewish holiday. There are other Jewish holidays that are far more important than Hanukkah. And Kwanzaa, Even most, almost all African Americans who celebrate Kwanzaa also celebrate Christmas. So at the end of the day, we're right back to where we started. We are celebrating, whether we really believe in him or not, we are celebrating the birth of a carpenter born to peasant parents 2,000 years ago in rural Israel in an obscure village who was an enemy of the state, crucified at the age of 33, and died without leaving any descendants. We're either crazy or we really need to explore who this person Jesus is. I think you know right out of the box, I don't think we're crazy. I think we're doing the right thing. In fact, I think Christmas is one of the few things that our culture gets right. It is worth celebrating for a season. It's worth all the music and the decorations and the gifts. There's every reason in the world for us to do all the things that we're going to do to celebrate Jesus because he is worth celebrating. Every year when we do a Christmas series, we explore who Jesus is. But this year we're going to take an unusual track. We're going to look at Jesus' family tree. And I hope that you'll give me a little latitude because, frankly, between you and me, the sermon today is probably going to be a little dry at least for a while because we need to go back and sort of figure out why we celebrate Christmas and where it all got started. But before we get into who we're going to talk about today, let me take a few moments to talk to you about a family tree and a genealogy. Chances are, if you like to get into genealogy, you want to look into your background, look at your grandparents, great grandparents, ancestors through the years, because we would like to have maybe a little definition to ourselves. We want to understand ourselves better. So we look at our forebears in the hopes that we can understand who we are and why we are who we are. I grew up in Texas. And I'm, I'm really old. I don't think they do this in Texas anymore. But, guys, if you've ever wondered why Texans are just so awfully insufferable, you have to understand we were taught to be insufferable. Um, when, when I was in school, we did history every year, and it cycled. We had a three-year cycle. One year we would do American history, one year we'd do world history, and then we would spend a whole year in Texas history. That's why we're so crazy. We were taught Texas history for a whole year, three or four times. And if you're my age, you're in Texas, you remember what this was like. And so when we were taught about the Alamo and all the heroes, and, of course, one of the big heroes in Texas is Sam Houston. He is the guy that the city of Houston is named after. He was the first president of the Republic of Texas, and he led the forces that were victorious at San Jacinto. Imagine my amazement one time when my grandmother showed me my lineage and how that I'm a descendant of Sam Houston. I thought that was the biggest thing in the world. You know, and I used to walk around when I was a kid thinking maybe I've got the blood of a great person in me. I don't know, probably not. But that's what we tend to look for when we look look at our ancestors. We want, to, we want something from our past to reflect upon us. Well, the interesting thing about Jesus is that Jesus, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't look to his ancestors to give him definition. Here's what's interesting about our series. He gives definition to his ancestors. He, he had no descendants. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 53. This is a prophecy about Jesus. He died without descendants. His life was cut short in midstream. So when you look at Jesus' genealogy, there, there's nobody coming after him. It's just all the people who come before him, and they don't give Jesus' definition so much as he gives them definition And that's why we're going to cherry pick in Jesus' genealogy and look at several people. And by the way, it's really interesting when you start getting into Jesus' family tree to see who is there. We might think that, you know, Jesus only had people with halos in his family tree. Would you be surprised to know there's a hooker in Jesus' family tree? Would you be surprised to know there's a pagan in Jesus' family tree? Next week we're going to see there's a totally dysfunctional family. And so if you had a dysfunctional family experience in Thanksgiving, you're anticipating one in Christmas, you need to know that Jesus had a dysfunctional family in his family tree. Lots of dysfunctional families. So I just want you to know that Jesus had people in his family tree, sort of like the people that you and I have in our family tree. Now, please, I hope this is not boring to you, but you really need these mechanics for you to be able to understand the this, this story of Jesus' family tree. We actually have two genealogies of Jesus in the Bible. And, and then let me... Let me tell you how it all comes about. Like, how many of you have ever started to read the New Testament, and you get, go, I'm going I'm to read the New Testament. So you go in there, and you, there's Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament, and it's the story of Jesus. And Matthew starts by telling us about Jesus' birth, and then you know, his early ministry, and then the stories, the parables, Sermon on the Mount. You get into the miracles that Jesus did, and then finally, Jesus is arrested and crucified. He rises from the grave and ascends into heaven. You think, okay, I've read the story of Jesus. Now what comes next? And then you find out that Mark comes next. And guess what Mark does? Mark tells us the story of Jesus. Now Mark is a short short book. It's kind of bing, bang, boom. He's real fast. Most likely this is Peter's gospel. Mark doesn't even tell us about Jesus' birth. He jumps right in at Jesus' ministry. And so you have Jesus' ministry and the miracles and the stories that he tells And then Jesus' crucifixion is death and resurrection. You think, okay, now I've read the story of Jesus. Then you get into Dr. Luke's gospel, my personal favorite. I love Luke's gospel. Luke was a physician, and he was an observer. And Luke saw so many things that other people didn't see. You know what's interesting about the gospels? Clearly these guys did not copy each other. And there are differences in the gospels, not contradictory differences, but nuances of difference. And clearly these are different perspectives that present Jesus in a different way. Luke really writes the story of Jesus more from a Greek perspective, more from an intellectual perspective, a doctor's perspective. And interestingly, I always thought to myself that Luke must have either been an obstetrician or a gynecologist because Luke tells us more stories about women than the other gospel writers do. And I'm so thankful for that because we see that women were key players in the story of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Luke tells us the story of Jesus most fleshed out. In fact, probably the Christmas story that you've read comes from the gospel of Luke. And then Luke tells us about Jesus' life and his ministry and parables and stories, Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And you think, okay, and then you get into John. And John tells us the story of Jesus, but he tells it in a very different way because John presents Jesus as God. And on top of that, almost all of John's gospel is the last week of Jesus' life. Now, in those four stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only two gospels that give us Jesus' family tree. Mark doesn't give us Jesus' family tree because he presents Jesus as a servant, and he's writing to a Roman audience, and a Roman audience wouldn't care anything at all about Jesus' family tree. John, on the other hand, he's going to present Jesus as God. God doesn't have a family tree. But Matthew and Luke do give us a family tree of Jesus, and here's where it gets interesting to me. When you start reading Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy, it won't be long before you'll start finding a few different names, and you'll think to yourself, what's going on here? You and I should understand that Matthew and Luke have very different reasons for presenting Jesus' genealogy. Up here on stage, you'll notice that on both sides of Jesus' genealogy, you have a key name, David. David is very key to Matthew because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. See, when David was on the throne of Israel, God came to him one day and he said, David, a descendant of yours is going to be on the throne forever. Now, the Jewish kingdom, the, 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 king, the kings of the Jews pretty much stopped around 500 B.C. There were no kings after that. But the Jews always understood there was a promise that one day God would send his champion who would be a king, a descendant of David, and there would be no end to his kingdom. It would be an everlasting kingdom. So Matthew sets out to prove that Jesus is a descendant of King David. But Matthew does something really interesting. It's a legal genealogy because he's writing a legal document. Now, although Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, he is Jesus' father of record. So when you look at the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew and he tells the family tree of Jesus, what you'll notice is that Matthew takes us through Joseph. Joseph's not Jesus' biological father, but legal father. And he takes us all the way, way back to David's son, Solomon. But when Dr. Luke starts writing, Dr. Luke is presenting Jesus as human, that he is just as human as you and I are. And so he takes us through a different trek. And I want to, at this point, I want to take us into Luke's gospel because we're going to like move into the person we're going to be talking about today. By the way, Matthew's gospel only goes back to Abraham because he's presenting Jesus as a Jew. Luke's gospel is going a lot further back. Let's read. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, the son of Heli. Now, if you read Jesus' genealogy in Matthew, Joseph's dad's name is completely different. What you should know is that there is no Greek word for son-in-law or father-in-law. Like, for instance, my, my father-in-law was Albert McDonald. And, and, and if, if I was being presented along with some official document with, with my father-in-law, it would say Mark son of Albert MacDonald. Now, I'm not Albert's son. I'm his son-in-law. And he's not my father. He's my father-in-law, but he would be presented as my father because there's just no Greek word for that. So what's really cool about this, and I've already led you into the, 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 the situation here, Joseph, son of Heli. Heli is not Joseph's dad. Heli is Mary's dad. And so in this genealogy, we're not going through Joseph. We're going through Mary, which is why some of the names are different. And Mary is a descendant of David's son, Nathan. So whether you're going legal or biological, Jesus is the son of David and has a right to the throne of Israel, either legally or biologically, either way through both Joseph and Mary, which is what I'll be talking about on Christmas Eve as we talk about Joseph and Mary. Now, how far back does... Dr. Luke go in his genealogy of Jesus. Well, look at this. Verse 38, the son of Enosh. By the way, all that son of and Luke, if, you, if a lot of you have a translation that represents this accurately. It's in, it's in italics to signify there's no Greek word there. It's just those English words are supplied for us to help us understand. So son of is not there. It's just so-and-so of so-and-so. That will be important in just a minute. Like uh, the, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of. Now you know son of is not there, it just means Adam of God. Adam came from God. Man. Dr. Luke has done his homework and he knows about studying genealogies because he's taking us all the way back to Adam. Now, I I, I ran the risk today of starting with perhaps the most boring. Of all the characters I could have started with, because I'm promising you, we're going to look at some exciting and strange people in Jesus' family tree, and we're going to be blown away by some of the people that we're going to look at for the next few days. But I just thought, if Jesus' family tree starts with Adam, maybe that's where you and I should start today. And here's here's what I found kind of interesting about this. I never thought about Jesus being related to Adam, but he was. Jesus and Adam shared genetics. Hey, by the way, did you know that we all come from the same maternal parent? Now, I mean, the Bible says that, but did you know that that's true from a scientific perspective? That all of us are the descendant of a most common recent female ancestor. By the way, even science calls her mitochondrial Eve. You know, they, would, they would have picked that name just because of, of the Bible character. But, and they might not see that as the same Eve that I would see that as, but still it's true. We all come from the same Female ancestor. Regardless of your race, regardless of, of where you come from in the world, we all come from the same female ancestor. We all, we all come from the same most common recent male ancestor. Now, for me, I take the Bible at, at face value, and you may not, and that's fine. That's cool. I'm not trying to jam you. I'm just saying if, if Jesus is a descendant of Adam, he shares genetics with Adam. But then I go back to Adam too, which means not only am I kin to Adam, I am kin. If you think about this. This is kind of blew me away. I'm kin to Jesus. Jesus and I share genetics. You ever thought about that? You're an important person because you're kin to Jesus. Think about that. Sam Houston's nobody after I think about it. <laughs> well, let's talk about Adam for a few moments. And please, just grant me a little space because I think we need to start here. Um, the Bible tells us about how Adam got his start. In Genesis chapter 1, God is going through creation. There's a whole lot, I'm sure, that we don't understand about creation. But the Bible tells us God made the world, whenever he made the world, that God made plant life and then God made animal life. And now it came time for him to create humans. This is in verse 26. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals. So God created human beings. Now, guys, listen, please in the bible when this is just this is just there's a, there's a whole science called hermeneutics which is the study of the bible and one of the key hermeneutics is this anytime you find something repeated in the bible it is like saying pay especially close attention to this but if you ever find an expression butted up against itself repeated you know, in in a, in, a, in a way where the same statement is made twice, that is as if it was like going off and ne- flashing in neon, and we have it here for the first time, and it has to do in 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 the creation of human beings. By the way, I know this is a tough time of year, and it could be that you came here today and you say, "Mark, I've gone through a really tough time, and I just don't feel like I have any value. I don't have any worth." I want to tell you something. You, and I'm not blowing sunshine at you. I can prove this in just a moment. You are worth more than all the money in the world. You personally, every man, every woman here, you are worth more than everybody. Every share of stock, you're worth more than every piece of possession or you're worth more than every piece of real estate. Here is why you are. The Bible says God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God. Did you see that? Repeated, butted up against itself back to back. Twice the Bible tells us we are distinguished from the plant kingdom. We are distinguished from the animal kingdom. We were made in the image of God. Here is the thing. You have within you a never-dying soul. The Bible says, Male and female, he created them, then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. For those of you who are more analytical, God know you would. He knew you would want to know kind of how He did it. So in chapter two, we get a little bit of expansion on that. The Lord God formed, it means the Hebrew word there means squeezed into a mold. The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, remember this. A lot of us hear that God made us out of the dust of the ground. Totally irrelevant. He could have made us out of anything. You're not valuable because of the the chemical components that you were made out of. You're valuable because God breathed his breath into you and you became a living person. That is what is so important about worship. If you've ever wondered, why should I come to church and worship God, here's why. A few moments ago when we were singing, do you realize what we were doing? That breath that God breathed into us, we were breathing it back to him in praise. That's what makes worship such a special experience. Now, let's think about Adam for a moment. What what was different about him? I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but I, I thought about Adam. He got to live for at least one brief shining moment, and his wife Eve, they got to live life as it was meant to be. If you've ever felt that life isn't fair, you're right. If you've ever felt that this world is screwed up, you're so right. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But for one brief shining moment, there was a man and a woman who got to live life the way it was meant to be. Think about this. Adam and Eve, when they got up in the morning, it was all good, no bad. Honestly, I have a wonderful life, but I can't think of a single day where everything went right. Right? When somebody asks us if we had a good day, we tend to we weigh and say, well, there was more good than bad. I guess it was a good day. More bad than good, it was a bad day. But for one brief shining moment, our first parents got to live life with good, no bad. They got to have every pleasant sensation, no pain. Some of us would have no idea what it's like to have a day with no pain. Um, they, got, they had nothing to worry about. I wouldn't know how that works. I mean, if I don't have something to worry about, I'll worry about that. And anxiety is my biggest issue. I just thought, what would it be like for Adam and Eve to have a day, nothing to worry about? And that is really cool. And no future but future. I mean, they never had to think, when are we going to die? Because death wasn't part of the world. I mean, I had a, we have a couple who are a friend of ours in ministry, and we got to be good friends in September, and we just really like this couple. And they have a son, as we have a son, who was in, in a pastor in a church, and he was killed in an accident the day before Thanksgiving, and all day Thanksgiving. My heart broke because while we were celebrating, I thought here is a family I love very much and they're planning a funeral. And we have to think about that because we don't know when death is coming. I mean, We, we think about, and some of us are already, you know, we're in these middle years and we're wondering how much, you know, how, how much uh, QTL do I have? How much quality time left do I have? Adam and Eve never had to worry about that. They didn't even know about death. And you know what? Here's what's really cool. A lot of us, would we, we don't wonder what this is like. This was a perfect man and a perfect woman who had a perfect marriage. Now, that takes a lot of imagination for many of us, right? Perfect marriage. I'd just like to have seen what one day of that was like. I read this the other day. There's a little riddle about Christmas, and maybe you can figure this out faster than I did. It said, once upon a time, a perfect man and a perfect woman met. After a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding, and their life was, of course, perfect. One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving their perfect car, an SUV, along a winding road. When they noticed someone at the side of the road in distress, being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. There stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children on the eve of Christmas, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their vehicle, and soon they were delivering the toys. Unfortunately, as will happen on Christmas Eve, the driving conditions deteriorated, And the perfect couple and Santa Claus had an accident. Only one of them survived the accident. Who was the survivor? It was the perfect woman. She's the only one who ever existed in the first place. (laughs) Everybody knows there's no Santa Claus, and there's no such thing, Lord knows, as the perfect man. (laughs) But a man read that and came along and added this with a sharpie. So if there's no perfect man and no Santa Claus, the perfect woman must have been driving. This explains why there was an accident. (laughs) Now, frankly, I'm not going to touch that with a 10 foot pole because here's the deal. At the end of the day, we know there is no perfect man, there's no perfect woman, there's no perfect marriage. But for one brief shining moment, there was a perfect marriage, perfect sex. But most of all, for one brief shining moment, there was a perfect relationship with God. It seems from what we can pick up from Genesis that God would come and interact with Adam and Eve. And you know what? When God came to visit Adam and Eve, and here's the thing, forgive me for breaking a sentence. I am a Christ follower. I know that my sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. But Mark knows so many things that I've done wrong and thought wrong in my life. And even when I come to God, I still struggle to come to God without some guilt. Is anybody else here like me? I mean, even even knowing I'm forgiven, I still come with a specter in the shadow of that guilt. For one brief shining moment, Adam and Eve were able to face God face to face because they'd never done anything wrong. They didn't even know what sin was. They had this wonderful relationship with God, and they enjoyed God like you and I will enjoy him when we get to heaven. But something went really wrong. Something went so wrong that it brought about a world that you and I know about today. Again, please give me a little latitude because I need to give you what the Bible tells us about what went wrong. See, Adam and Eve were the first human beings, but they were certainly not the first beings in the world. Before Adam and Eve, there were other beings. You know, what's really interesting, and a lot of people will ask me the question, well, if, you know, who made God and when did God begin? That's because all you and I understand is time. God gave time as a concept so that we would be able to make life relevant. But there was existence before there was time. I mean, we even understand. Always, people people always ask me, "When did God have a beginning?" As though that I've, there's, we're compelled to get some sort of answer to that. And I always think, "My goodness, uh, you know, a fourth grader who's beginning in geometry knows the answer to this. If you draw a line and you put a point at the beginning and a point at the ending, you have a line segment. It's got a beginning. It's got an ending. If you draw a line, you put a point at beginning and an arrow on the other end. It's a ray. It has a point of beginning, but theoretically, it has no ending. It goes into infinity." And if you draw a line and put arrows in either end, you have a line and a line. We understand the line is infinite. It goes forever. If we understand that in basic geometry, why don't we understand that in the concept of God? See, God is the creator of time. The problem is we want, we, we want to wrestle God down and put on him a concept that, of, for something he created in the first place. The God is infinite. God is eternal. And in God's eternality... He had other creations before he made us, and those creations were angels. And the angels, we tend to think about angels as fluffy beings that fly around on wings. No, I don't, I'm not even sure angels have bodies. They may be able to take forms. I, I draw that from certain places in Scripture, but angels are spirit beings, as God is a spirit. You're a spirit. You're a spirit that lives in a body. You know, as human beings, we're so accustomed to the physical, we tend to bonus. The physical, and we tend to discount the spiritual. But the Bible tells us in Second Corinthians chapter four that everything we can see is going to disappear. It's what we can't see that's eternal. So you are not a, a body that has a spirit. You're a spirit that has a body. And when eventually you die, you're not going to die. It's just your body's going to be left behind. Your spirit goes on living forever. Now, God made angels, and they were very powerful. In fact, we read in the Bible about a time when an angel deliberately won a victory that God wanted this angel to win. One angel destroyed an army of 185,000, so they're extraordinarily powerful. And it seems that the most beautiful and the most powerful of the angels was one that we come to know of as Lucifer. Lucifer was extraordinarily beautiful, extraordinarily intelligent, very wise. And it seems that his particular job was to lead the other angels in the worship of God. But one day, Lucifer began to get full of himself and thought, why should God get all the props? Well, Let's read about it. The Bible gives it to us in Ezekiel chapter 28. Here's what God says to Satan. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. have no idea what that means. I guess we'll find out when we get to heaven. You walked among the fiery stones. have no idea what that means. We'll find out when we get to heaven. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. As much as I hate Satan, it's hard for me to imagine that he was ever blameless, but evidently there was a time that he was. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. By the way, there are some people who think, oh, you only invent Satan because after all you have a God, you have to invent an opposite and equal opponent. No, he's not equal, and and I didn't invent him. He was a created being by God. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. God said, so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and I got this in red in my notes. You corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. In other words, Satan began to look at himself and get lifted up in pride, and he corrupted, he decayed is the Hebrew word. He decayed his wisdom. Now, guys, listen. You can read about Satan in all the key places in the Bible, the book of Job. You can read about what he did to people in the Old Testament, how he tempted Jesus, and just all the destructive stuff that he did in the Bible and the stuff that we see in our world today. And there's one thing that's very clear. He's very intellectual. He's very bright, but he's not, he doesn't have common sense. See, what happens is when he lifted himself up in pride, he lost his ability to think clearly how many of you have known somebody who was very smart but didn't have any common sense? I mean, some of you have professors in college who were brilliant, but they couldn't think their way of a paper bag. And, and maybe some of you have pastors who were that way too. I don't know. So in any event, here's the thing. When you think about the Garden of Eden, what you have is you have God, you have his first created children, Adam and Eve, and you have one very screwed up angel who's very powerful, and that's what you have. Now, here's the situation as God gave it to him. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't know exactly a whole lot about what those were, but we draw from this that the tree of life, the fruit of that tree, gave Adam and Eve the ability to sustain life. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is the knowledge of the dark side. They didn't you see. Adam and Eve had no idea what murder was. They had no idea. They would learn. They had no idea what abuse was. They had no idea what hate was, racism. They didn't know what rape was. They didn't. They didn't know what war was. And God had said to them, "Look, I want you to only know the good side." And so here's. And, and here's one of the questions that people have asked me through the years. Been asked this so many times in thirty six years. If God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, why did He give them a choice? Here's what you must understand about every being God creates. He refuses to create robots. God wants to be loved, and he wants to be worshipped. Well, The problem is if he doesn't give us a choice, then we're just robots, and our worship doesn't mean anything. So when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them the ability to choose against him. But I love the way that God tilted it in their favor. God didn't say you can eat of half the trees, but you can't eat of half the trees. God said you can explore, you can have everything you want, just one tree in the middle, leave it alone. And it was for their benefit. Now, this very messed up angel, Satan, comes along and he has a purpose. His purpose is to destroy God's creation. And, guys, listen to me, please, because this is where it comes down to you and me. See, he wants to foul up God's creation before they have any descendants. Because if he can foul them up before they have any children, he gets everybody. Like a pilot who, because a pilot error, brings down an airliner. It isn't just the pilot who dies. Everybody on board dies. Satan is well aware of the fact that genetically everybody is on board with Adam and Eve at this moment. If he can get them before they have children, he will flip God off and he will destroy his creation. So Satan has got to get them to shop at his store. You know, I was in Atlanta Last week, thinking about this message. And all of a sudden, I had a question I never thought about before. If Adam was perfect, how did he do wrong? What was the mechanic? What was the nexus in his perfect spirit that became a connection, a linkage, so that he could do wrong? And and it it just hit me. It was curiosity. See, curiosity is a good thing. I don't want to hire anybody who's not curious. I love curiosity. I love working with curious people. I mean, God has given us curiosity as a gift to learn. And God wanted Adam and Eve to explore their curiosity. He gave them wonderful places to shop. He said, you can shop the whole garden. Explore your curiosity. You can learn all about the animal kingdom. You just excuse your curiosity to learn everything that I've created. But Satan came along, and he had one store. He had one tree to work with. And he said, I've got to get them to shop at my store. And you know what? He's still trying to get you and me to use our gift of curiosity to shop at his store. How else, I'm not trying to be personal, how else do you explain somebody as brilliant as General Petraeus doing something so foolish? My heart goes out to him. My heart goes out to his wife. Satan got him to shop at his store. And you know what? He'll do the same thing for you. And you've got to realize this. Anytime Satan gets you to shop at his store, you'll always pay too much. The merchandise is fake, and you'll always be a victim of identity theft. You'll pay too much for something that's worthless, and the day will come when you, probably like General Petraeus, look in the mirror. You don't know who you are anymore. Well, Lord knows that happened to our first parents. God had said, don't eat of this fruit because the day you do, you will die. And Satan said, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Satan said, God is trying to keep something back from you. And Adam and Eve both ate the fruit, and Adam was the one who was at fault because God had given the instructions to Adam. He knew, and he did it willingly. And at that moment when they ate, everything fell apart. Their eyes were open; They suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, and they tried to cover it up. In a moment, everything was lost, and with you and me on board. You say, Mark, are you making that up? No. Read the Bible with me. When Adam sinned, sin entered into the whole world, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Now, somebody could say, wait a minute, Mark. Uh, God said, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. And he didn't die for a long time. That's because you and I only interpret death as physical death. Death is not the cessation of life. Death is separation. Thanatos, the word means to separate. Physical death is when your body, and soul, body separates from your soul and spirit. Spiritual death is being separated from God. And then on the day that Adam and Eve sinned, they began to die physically. They were separated from God. They didn't have that communication with God anymore. And the worst part about it was they now became victims of what Revelation, the book of Revelation, calls eternal death. So many times through the years people have asked me, Mark, if God is a loving God, why did he make hell? And what's this thing about hell? If God is a loving God, you must understand God never made hell for people. Very clearly, the Bible says God made hell for Satan and his demons. But unfortunately, when our first parents took his deal, they got his judgment, and we were on board. And you say, well, Mark, why did you pick this? This is kind of a dark way to start Christmas. This is where Christmas comes in. This is why Christmas matters. You know, I wonder here today, is there anybody here that you feel like there's no way out? If you were to talk to me about your life, you would use those three words, no way out. My marriage, no way out. My career is no way out. My whole life, no way out. I'm locked out and blocked in. You know why I love God so much? When we're, we're in a situation where there's no way out and we're locked out and blocked in, God comes along and he makes a way. And Adam and Eve, our first parents, were in deep trouble. They, they were going to die physically. They were separated from God spiritually. They were on the way to hell and all of us were on board. And you know what? Here's the thing. Through the years, God, throughout the Old Testament, for four thousand years, God kept giving people promises about Jesus, so that when the, when the Messiah came, he could be identified. For instance, in Genesis 49, we know that he would come from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Numbers 24:17, we know there's going to be a star associated with his birth. Micah, 500 years before Jesus was born, says he'd be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, said he'd be born of a virgin. Are you crying? Are you kidding me? Daniel gives us a timetable. If you ever want to know why the wise men went off looking for Jesus following the star, that's because they had Daniel's notes on the fact that there was a star associated with his birth, and they had a timetable. So by the time Jesus came along, Messiah couldn't have been anybody else. I mean, it was like all these promises. Do you know where the first promise of Christmas appears? It was on this day when our first parents lost it all with us on Because in Genesis 3.15, for the very first time, God says, Adam, you screwed it up, but I'm sending my champion, and he will make way. Now, do you know who God was talking to the first time he promised Jesus? Well, there weren't a whole lot of people there. There's only a handful. Was it Adam? No. Was it Eve? do you know the first person God told about Jesus coming into our world? It was Satan. God talked to Adam and said, hey, things are going to be tough because you're saying, Eve, things are going to be tough. And God turned to Satan and said, and now I want to talk to you because Satan was over there smugly saying, I beat you. I screwed up your creation. I destroyed your man, your, your woman. I have beaten you at your own game. And God said, I have news for you. And in Genesis 3.15, we have the first promise of Christmas. God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, conflict, and between your offspring and her offspring. Ever wonder why Jesus had to be born of a virgin? Every once in a while, somebody will say, well, that's biologically impossible. Hence the point. (laughs) No. You ladies probably figured this out intuitively if you didn't know it theologically. Did you know the sin nature is passed down by the Father? Every woman here said, yes, (laughs) I know that. That's true. That's why Jesus had to be born, seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. That's why Jesus came into our world born of Mary and born of God. He was human so he could reach out with one hand and touch us. He was God so he could reach out with the other hand and touch God, and then he could bring us together. And God said to Satan, you think you've won? You think you've beaten me? Do you realize who I am? I'm am God, and I've got a plan, and even though there seems to be no way out, I'm going to make a way, and I'm going to send my champion into the world, and he can do what Adam failed at. And he, You know, I think God has emotion here because he said to Satan, you will bruise his heel, but look at this. He, uh, can you feel the anger coming out of God when he said this? He will crush your head. Whoa, I like that. You think, and by the way, I've always believed, when, here's this expression, you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. I always figure that it happens in the same action. Jesus bruised his heel while he was crushing Satan's head. I think the bruised heel refers to Jesus dying on the cross. You can get over a bruised heel in about three days. I think that happened when Jesus bruised his heel by crushing Satan's head, and he destroyed him. By the way, Satan is still around, but he's a defeated foe. Boy, when Jesus came out of the grave, it was game, set, match. And now there is a way back to God. We who were locked out and blocked in with no way out because our first parents almost took us down. God came along and he brought his son Jesus into the world who lived the perfect life that Adam couldn't live. And after living the perfect life, turned around and laid down on a cross and took the punishment for your and my sins so that we could have a way back to God. Now listen. I know I'm out of time, but I've got to read this to you because it's really important. In Romans chapter 5, verse 15, just, just let this sink in, okay? Because I think it will explain to you why we put the tree up and the lights and celebrate and give gifts. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater. See, in other words, all the hardship that Adam's sin brought into our world. That was an effective thing. But more effective than Adam's sin, the Bible says, is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free, I love this, God's free gift leads to our being made right with God even though we are guilty of many sins. I'm guilty of many sins, but God has offered me a way back, and that way is Jesus. And that's why I put up the lights and the tree, and I give gifts, and I sing the songs, and I celebrate like no other time of the year because when there was no way out and we were locked out and blocked in, God sent his champion into our world to run the table and live a perfect life and then turn around and pay for our sin so that anyone who puts confidence in him can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. It's not by what you do, and it's not by how religious you are. It is you having a connection with Jesus Christ and you receiving him as your Lord and Savior. You know what? I bet you've sung about it and didn't even realize it. Have you ever sung Hark the Herald Angels? You were in school, and you remember singing words you didn't know what they meant? Hear these words from Hark the Herald Angels and see if they don't mean more now than they ever meant before. Come, desire of nations, come. Come. Fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now a face. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. Reinstate us in thy love. i bet you'll never see Hark the Herald Angels sing again the same way. It's where Christmas started. Hey, let's make this personal. If you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I've been religious, but I don't know that I've ever had that kind of relationship with God. For the first time, I get it. It isn't me. It's what Jesus did for me. It's that he made a way for me to have a relationship with God. And did you read the moment ago in Romans? It said it's a free gift. So you don't know what I've done. You can receive a free gift, can't you? Forgiveness. Even though the Bible says we're guilty of many sins, you can receive the gift God offers you eternal life and a restoration with him, not on what you do, but on what Jesus did. That's why He came. I'm going to do something right now. How do you receive a gift? You just reach out and accept it. I'm going to pray a prayer that accepts God's free gift. And it's not the words. The important thing is what you mean that matters. But I'm going to ask you to pray with me for a moment. And if you want to make that decision today to invite Jesus Christ into your life and to experience forgiveness, a relationship with God, you can do it right now. You ready? Let's pray. Dear God, I am guilty of many sins, but I believe you love me anyway. And I believe you made a way. I believe that way is Jesus. I believe He lived a perfect life and then He died for my sins. I believe He arose in the grave. I receive Him today as my Savior. In my King, in Jesus' name, amen. I know that was a quick prayer, and it may have happened so quickly, you think, I'm not really sure, I know what happened to me. If you just prayed that prayer, I have a gift for you. When you came in, you got a talk to us card, all you got to do is just say, I pray with Mark. Bring it back to guest services. I've got a packet for you. It's got a DVD, a book I wrote, and there's a coupon for a brand new Bible. I promise you, nobody will ask you to stalk you. We just want to give that to you. Thank you for being here. I'm going to ask Luis to come. For those of you who want a devotional, I'll be back at the back signing. Thank you. God bless. We'll see you next weekend.